We are peeing on Ukraine and we don't care, ultimately. Before we start the episode, news came through that Navalny, the Russian opposition leader who has been imprisoned now for years on completely made up charges, has died. And it's a really important reminder of Putin's brutality. But even so, it's important to separate Putin's brutality from some of the valid points that came up in this interview. And I know it's not easy. Same way you can't take away the genius of Thriller, even though Michael Jackson turned out to be a broken, terrible vessel for transporting that genius. Did I just compare Michael Jackson to Putin? Nobody's perfect. Let's start the show. Welcome to an all new episode of the McFuture podcast, challenging the beliefs that run the world. I'm Steve Factor, and today I want to talk to you about Tucker Carlson and Vladimir Putin. I don't think in the history of media, there's ever been another person who has made it as far as Tucker on a quizzical look. They send them to rulers of Russian origin and Orthodox faith. When Warsaw did not answer them, and in fact rejected their demands, they turned to Moscow so that Moscow took them away. You definitely got the sense he's finally in the big leagues. Vladimir Putin knows karate, taekwondo, krav maga, and he is a championship ice skater. In fact, I don't think there's anything he couldn't do. Now that uh, Leah Thomas has opened the door, he's very close to being one of the top female swimmers in the world. A lot of people in corporate media are very upset by the interview. I get it. They think Tucker is a bit of a sympathizer and he's going to give softball questions. And the reason they can't get interviews is because they're going to be tough on Putin. I would give their arguments more credence if they hadn't lied us into multiple wars or the fact that they shepherded us from one narrative to another. Ooh, Russia collusion, that proved to be nothing. Then we're all wearing pink pussy hats because we care so much about the ladies. And then all of a sudden, oh, black squares, everyone's gotta have one until we don't because we bought houses for the leaders of this uh, bogus movement. Everyone is now trans. Forget about all that stuff we said about the ladies. Now, anyone who thinks they're a lady, you're a lady, okay? <laughs> and you better not question it. And same thing with Ukraine. This country that most people in the United States can't find on a map is now suddenly the single most important issue, as uh, said by Mitt Romney. The vote we will soon take to provide military weapons for Ukraine is the most important vote we will ever take as United States senators. And then Israel, wherever you sit on that, I don't care if you're pro or con any of these things, but we're not arriving at our opinions through critical thinking or even facts. We're being fed narratives. So this idea that this moral, wonderful, truth-seeking media is now upset at Tucker Carlson, give me a break. Now, uh, Tucker doesn't get off easy either. In this interview, he came off like a child sitting with an adult. There were several times when Putin actively made fun of Tucker. There was one time where he goofed on him being a reject to the CIA, because apparently he applied to the CIA at some point and then didn't get in. With the backing of CIA, of course. The organization you wanted to join back in the day, as I understand. We should thank God they didn't let you in. Although, it is a serious organization. I understand. My former vis-a-vis -vis in the sense that I served in the first main directorate, Soviet Union's intelligence service. They have always been our opponents. A job is a job. And what's funny about that is... Putin did more research on Tucker than Tucker did on Russia and Ukraine going into the interview. And that's an embarrassment. You just kind of see what level the kind of person who's good at sound bites and American media is versus someone who really has depth that 
needs to be challenged, but there was no one there to challenge it. And don't think for a second Rachel Maddow or any of these other people, uh, Anderson Cooper, would make any difference whatsoever. These are soundbite people who take a lot of orders. They're stenographers for the government. This is not a media establishment that is capable of challenging someone who has a depth of knowledge that they don't even reach. And, and it was very evident throughout the interview. And the other thing I noticed is I'm not sure we can trust this translation. There was one moment in particular where the Russian bled through and I could hear exactly what Putin said. The two words he used were extremely insulting to Tucker. Here, listen for yourself. I mean, Hitler's been dead for 80 years. Nazi Germany no longer exists. And so, true. And so, I think what you're saying is you want to extinguish or at least control Ukrainian nationalism, but how? How do you do that? Вот послушайте меня, ваш вопрос очень тонкий. Listen to me. Your question is very subtle. And I can tell you what I think. Do not take offense. Of course. This question appears to be subtle. It is quite pesky. He called his question thin and disgusting. And the translation said subtle and pesky. And just a few impressions of Putin. What are you talking about? No, that's not the impression I'm talking about. First, Tucker kept interrupting him. And you can tell this is a guy who hasn't been interrupted in 24 years. Last guy who interrupted him is now a nightlight. He's so full of polonium. He, every time he farts, he illuminates his house. I understand that my long speeches probably fall outside of the genre of the interview. That is why I asked you at the beginning, are we going to have a serious talk or a show? You said a serious talk. So bear with me. There is a depth of understanding of history. Now, you may not agree with his reading of history or his conclusion or his selective use of facts, but you cannot deny his mastery of the information. The guy was reeling stuff off the top of his head, one fact after the other. And again, no one was there to challenge it. Tucker was utterly unfit for this task. And you can disagree with a lot of things Putin has done, but you can kind of see why his people for a very long time, maybe not now that they can be drafted and killed in the military, but for a very long time, they loved him. They loved this guy. And you can tell because there's a depth there that I would say the last American leader who had that kind of encyclopedic knowledge, maybe Thomas Jefferson, it had to be someone who drafted the Constitution or Declaration of Independence. It was not Trump or George W. Bush or, 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 uh, or Biden or any of these uh, losers that we've had. And Clinton might know something, but he probably knows more about cigars than he does about history. He's charming in a way that Patrick Bateman uh, or Gavin Newsom is charming, where there's a lot of dismembered bodies somewhere, but he still knows a lot about Phil Collins. This is Susudio. A great, great song. Personal favorite. It almost doesn't matter if Putin's perceptions of history are correct, both recent history in terms of his administrations, as well as Russian history and Ukrainian history, because that is ultimately what guides his decisions, either what he's going to say outwardly or what he truly believes. And, you know, it's hard to draw the lines. We wouldn't be able to do that as, as interviewers or Tucker wouldn't. And a goal of a journalist, and again, Tucker, I think, mostly accomplished it, is to at least understand where this other person, the subject of the interview, is coming from. And I think we got that. A real journalist might have been able to challenge him more, but we'll never know what that world looks like. Now, in terms of his history lesson, the gist of this first, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes that he went on this huge diatribe was to delegitimize Ukraine. 
Originally, the word Ukrainian meant that the person was living on the outskirts of the state, along the fringes, or was engaged in a border patrol service. It didn't mean any particular ethnic group. And look, there are different points that you can start history and decide what is legitimate and what isn't uh, as a nation or a people. For example, there are people who are against Israel and they always start their history in 1948. And then there are people who are pro-Israel who will start their history back you know, 2,000 years before Christ. So facts serve the argument. They are extremely selective, but the facts were there. There were a lot of very interesting ones. And there are people who talked about Ukraine can be traced back as far as a thousand years. Uh, it, it may be true, but there's what it is historically and then what it is in practice. And as someone who grew up there, especially during Soviet times, culturally, there was not much of a difference. I knew so many people from Moscow, from uh, Kiev, from Lvov, from uh, all these other countries and in, in former Soviet republics. And there was not a lot of difference culturally. We all spoke Russian. And I would even make the argument that Ukrainian cultural identity didn't fully form until this war. It was Putin who ironically created this identity because it brought the people of uh, the Ukrainian nation closer together. And, um, and there have been leaders like Poroshenko, I think it was, who tried to make Ukrainian the official language because in the cities they still spoke Russian. There have been nationalist movements, but culturally very similar. And that brings me to the question of why we are intervening in what appears to be a domestic dispute. So there are a few options here. Is it the first option that we're being told that we are so noble, so righteous, and so good that we must help these people defend their nation? Is it just that? Or is it a little bit more self-interest where it's like, hey, uh, we know you're in a domestic uh, battery situation, so we'll help you beat up the husband as long as you marry us. So is it that? Do we want something from Ukraine and we want them to be our spouse for lack of a better analogy? Or do we just like the sound of the beating the abusive husband? Or did we buy a bunch of new bats and just wanted to hear how different ones sound? Oh, this one's aluminum. This one is titanium. And then wanted to beat the crap out of the husband because maybe if we break enough bats, they'll buy more. There is this spectrum from truly noble to truly cynical. And I honestly don't know exactly where we lie. And I know that Putin believes very clearly that we're at this end of the spectrum. And there was a time when I believed we were at the other end of the spectrum where we did noble things. Uh, I think the truth probably is somewhere in between. Uh, the other thing that uh, Putin talked a lot about, he talked about Poland and he, you know, because they're really the number one helper uh, bordering Ukraine that has been uh, funneling so much NATO weaponry into Ukraine. So uh, they came out with 10 lies that Putin told. And again, it almost doesn't matter because he is acting on his perceptions. He's not acting on truth. In fact, I would argue that almost all of us are acting on perceptions and almost never truth. More broadly, this interview really highlighted the difference between capitalism and socialism or, or socialist oligarchy, whatever it is that, that Russia is today. Tucker is very much symbolic of capitalism. In capitalism, you gather just enough information to make a decision or to do the job and move on. Whereas Putin's knowledge is very academic. He goes deep. I mean, this guy was reciting all kinds of historical events. Academic knowledge is endless. It is infinity. There's always some nuance, some other argument, some other reading of history, new details start to surface. And you don't ultimately do anything with it. 
Russia is filled with people like that, people who have so much knowledge, so much potential, and they get almost none of it to the rear wheels to power this thing forward. There's virtually no innovation. When was the last time you used a Russian product? Unless you're fighting in Afghanistan with AKs or some some other uh, Kashalnikovs, something like that, uh, the Russian rifles, you haven't used a Russian product ever. And the reason for that is there's very little rule of law. So they have this weird dichotomy where they have this incredible respect for academic knowledge and education, but then they just take companies from people. The guy who founded VK, which is their uh, Russian social network, just had it confiscated by the government. And there are countless stories, media companies, all kinds of companies that were just taken by Putin because they got too powerful, they pissed him off, or he wanted that uh, control. Great programmers are not going to sit there and build a company and invest all of their time only to have it be taken away. So they end up as bottom feeders, as uh, hackers. That way the government can't really take anything from them. Or they end up as academics or working for some foreign company that'll pay them really good money and nothing ever gets built. N Russia never becomes great. Putin, ironically, is the only exception to this rule. He made it farther on pure academic knowledge than anyone in his country can. And Tucker is very much an American product. He has just enough information to ask the questions, to get a video out, to get us all worked up, but really not the depth to challenge someone who has that kind of academic knowledge. Tucker was a monster truck and Putin was a Bentley. And yeah, if you were to crush it, great. But if you're looking at the capabilities and the artistry of the two vehicles, the stark difference was remarkable, at least to me. Another point Putin talked about, and I think we have never as a country really discussed it, nor are we even educated or informed enough to have this conversation, but it really is important because now it's affecting all of us. We're sending lots of money into this war, so we better start getting smart on this. Is it possible that we created the enemy we feared? The former Russian leadership assumed that the Soviet Union had ceased to exist, and therefore there were no longer any ideological dividing lines. Russia even agreed voluntarily and proactively to the collapse of the Soviet Union and believed that this would be understood by the so-called civilized West as an invitation for cooperation and association. After the Soviet Union collapsed, Putin talked about how Yeltsin was promised that we would not encroach into the Russian republics and close to Russia's borders with weapons. And that's exactly what NATO became. NATO became an encroachment. Well, we were promised no NATO to the east, not an inch to the east, as we were told. And then what? They said, well, it's not enshrined on paper, so we'll expand. So essentially, we continued our policies from the Soviet era, even though the Soviet Union was no longer in existence. So we made a choice to continue treating Russia as the enemy, not an ally. And there were two anecdotes he talked about that I thought were really interesting. One was when he met with George Bush Sr. and he said to him, hey, why don't we jointly build this missile defense system that the United States was talking about? Bush and his uh, Secretary of State, Jim Baker, both said, How, okay, that's interesting, let, let us think about it. And they got back to him and said, no, sorry. And then he had a similar conversation with Clinton about joining NATO. And Clinton initially said, oh, that's interesting, let, let me get back to you. Got back to him, sorry, bud, no no dice. We're, we're going with this NATO thing, uh, do or die. And in both cases, we chose to continue being enemies. And Tucker asked an interesting question. So twice you've described U.S. presidents making decisions and then being undercut by their agency heads. 
So it sounds like you're describing a system that's not run by the people who are elected in your telling. That's right. That's right. He said, well, if these guys can't tell you yes or no by themselves and they have to go back for permission and then came back with a no, who exactly is running this thing? And Putin, I think, said CIA or something, but alluding to the fact that once you build a machine, that machine will fight to survive. It will crush everything in its sight to survive, whether it's a, a human being, whether it's a robot, whether it's a department in a corporation, or whether it's the military-industrial complex. Why, in my opinion, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, such an erroneous, crude, completely unjustified policy of pressure was pursued against Russia? After all, this is a policy of pressure. NATO expansion, support for the separatists in Caucasus, creation of a missile defense system. These are all elements of pressure. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Then, dragging Ukraine into NATO is all about pressure, pressure, pressure. Why? I think, among other things, because excessive production capacities were created. During the confrontation with the Soviet Union, there were many centers created and specialists on the Soviet Union who could not do anything else. They convinced the political leadership that it is necessary to continue chiseling Russia, to try to break it up, to create on this territory several quasi-state entities and to subdue them in a divided form, to use their combined potential for the future struggle with China. This is a mistake, including the excessive potential of those who worked for the confrontation with the Soviet Union. It is necessary to get rid of this. There should be new, fresh forces, people who look into the future and understand what is happening in the world. The military-industrial complex was built for enemies, and we needed enemies, and we got them. And Russia had to be an enemy because that's how missiles were sold. That's how warplanes were sold. That is what this giant Cold War machine that we had built was built for. And we deferred to people who were determined to have enemies. And the question came up, should security be shared? The world should be a single whole. Security should be shared rather than a meant for the golden billion. That is the only scenario where the world could be stable, sustainable and predictable. Until then, while the head is split in two parts, it is an illness, a serious adverse condition. It is a period of severe disease that the world is going through now. But I think that, thanks to honest journalism, this work is akin to work of the doctors, this could somehow be remedied. Also, he made a sarcastic comment there. He said, thanks to the work of honest journalism, this can somehow be remedied. Clearly, this is not a man who believes in journalists unless they're uh, asking very friendly questions or just float up in a river once in a while. But it is interesting to wonder what the world might look like if we had a unilateral missile defense treaty essentially disarming the world. If no one could attack anyone because everyone had this base of defense, then imagine what we could have done. Imagine the trillions of dollars the United States wouldn't have to spend on war and could have spent it on civilian innovation. Maybe this could have triggered a global renaissance, but we'll never know because we were determined to have enemies. And Russia, as Putin said, was determined to take countermeasures. They were forced to take countermeasures. Our proposal was declined, that's a fact. It was right then when I said, look, but then we will be forced to take countermeasures. We will create such strike systems that will certainly overcome missile defense systems. And one of those countermeasures is developing hypersonic missiles, which we have no defense for, right? We are now ahead of everyone, the United States and the other countries, in terms of the development of hypersonic strike systems, and we are improving them every day.
But it wasn't us. We proposed to go the other way and we were pushed back. These things travel, I, I think it's like up to 10 times the speed of sound. And our fastest missiles go like three, three and a half times the speed of sound. So we're in deep trouble. If they wanted to attack and, and uh, China has the same thing. So we're in a very tough spot right now. It's worth thinking about what this world would have looked like. You have a tough time doing this, obviously, because resources are not distributed equally across all these nations. It's sort of like if you told everyone in America, you're all now managers at IBM. Well, some of them are toddlers. Some of them are old. Some of them are busy thinking Helmut Kohl is still alive. So, we have a lot of variability in the world in terms of intellectual capacity, in terms of innovativeness, in terms of cultural orientation, in terms of natural resources. There's just so much of a difference that if you were to impose military equity, I'm not sure we would end up with a utopia. I certainly think the potential is there for us to have spent money differently. And maybe that money would have... I hate to say trickle down, but certainly reached all of these other countries and elevated them to a higher uh, status and helped the world. Then that's me singing Kumbaya, but I do think it's something worth considering. And would Putin be a different guy in those circumstances? Uh, he still is a brutal tyrant, dictator, but would he have acted differently? Maybe. It's a world we'll never know. And one thing is for sure, when you are determined to treat Russia as an enemy, you are going to f with them a lot. And that's exactly what we've done with the caucuses. We've supported unrest there. We said in 2008, the door is potentially open for Ukraine joining NATO, which is something we promised we wouldn't do. In 2008, at the summit in Bucharest, they declared that the doors for Ukraine and Georgia to join NATO were open. Now about how decisions are made there. Germany, France seem to be against it, as well as some other European countries. But then, as it turned out, later President Bush, and he's such a tough guy, a tough politician, as I was told later, he exerted pressure on us and we had to agree. And it's ridiculous, it's like kindergarten. Where are the guarantees? This is nothing new. We've had people here for 35, 40 years talking about exactly that. I, I pulled up a quote from 1999 from Pat Buchanan, who's a conservative commentator. This is what he wrote in, um, I think it was National Review. He said, quote, by moving NATO onto Mother Russia's front porch, we are driving Russia into the arms of Beijing and creating the hostile alliance it is in our vital interest to prevent. That was 25 years ago. And then we went on. We staged a coup in 2014, overthrowing a, a leader who wanted to move closer to Putin. Instead of accepting that, we said, uh-uh, no. And this war, there was an off-ramp and there was a negotiation. We negotiated with Ukraine in Istanbul. We agreed he was aware of this. Moreover, the negotiation group leader, Mr. Arachemia is his last name, I believe still has the faction of the ruling party, the party of the president in the Rada. He still has the presidential faction in the Rada, the country's parliament. He still sits there. He even put his preliminary signature on the document I am telling you about. But then he publicly stated to the whole world, we were ready to sign this document, but Mr. Johnson, then the Prime Minister of Great Britain, came and dissuaded us from doing this, saying it was better to fight Russia. They would give everything needed for us to return what was lost during the clashes with Russia. And we agreed with this proposal. Look, his statement has been published, he said it publicly. Can they return to this or not? The question is, do they want it or not? Further on, President Ukraine issued a decree prohibiting negotiations with us. Let him cancel that decree, and that's it.
We have never refused negotiations, indeed. The U.S. sent Boris Johnson to meet with Zelensky and tell him not to accept the peace agreement that was negotiated. Titled The World Putin Wants, the foreign affairs article dropped a bombshell. According to multiple former senior US officials we spoke with in April 2022, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators appeared to have tentatively agreed on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement. According to the tentative peace plan, Russia would withdraw to its position on February 23rd when it controlled part of the Donbas region and all of Crimea and in exchange, Ukraine would promise not to seek NATO membership and instead receive security guarantees from a number of countries. Now, why did this plan turn dead on arrival? According to Ukrainian publication Ukrainska Pravda, Following the arrival of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson in Kyiv in April, a possible meeting between Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Russian President Vladimir Putin was put off. According to the publication, which has sources close to Zelensky, Boris Johnson carried to Ukraine two messages from the West. First, Putin is a war criminal and he should be pressured, not negotiated with. Second, and most importantly, even if Ukraine is ready to sign some agreements on guarantees with Putin, they, as in the West, are not. So, why does the West not want peace in Ukraine? Boris Johnson is believed to have told Zelensky and his government in Ukraine that the West believes Putin was not really as powerful as they had previously imagined and that there was a chance to quote-unquote press him. The conflict in Ukraine coming to an end would mean Western defense manufacturers would not be able to mint the kind of money they are currently making. Furthermore, peace between Russia and Ukraine would severely unsettle the West's campaign of isolationism against Moscow and Vladimir Putin. Eventually, the world's trade with Russia would return to normal. And the fact that they obeyed the demand or persuasion of Mr. Johnson, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain, seems ridiculous and very sad to me. Because, as Mr. Arakamiya put it, we could have stopped those hostilities with war a year and a half ago already. But the British persuaded us and we refused this. Where is Mr. Johnson now? And the war continues. That's a good question. Where do you think he is and why did he do that? Hell knows. I don't understand it myself. There was a general starting point. For some reason, everyone had the illusion that Russia could be defeated on the battlefield. Because of arrogance, because of a pure heart, but not because of a great mind. And then we destroyed Nord Stream. They talked about that as well. It's not only your motive to do something, but do you have the technical ability to go down that deep and to uh, strap dynamite underwater at those pressures? There's only like two countries other than the US that could do it. And we're the ones with the motives. You know, they released later in the New York Times, it was someone sympathetic to Ukraine. Yeah, who could it be? And even now, uh, Victoria Newland, uh, who works in the Biden administration now, she was the one who orchestrated the coup in 2014 in Ukraine. She is not happy that Zelensky is letting go of uh, Zeluzhny, who's one of his uh, military officers, because apparently he was a friendly uh, to the United States. We have not stopped f***ing with Russia. And you can see that... Our entire orientation is to poke, prod, and now weaken Russia, but not using our own forces, we're using Ukrainians. The other thing that came up, which I think is total BS, is Putin was like, it's really important for us to do denazification in Ukraine. And I think this is a good example of some of the half-truths that he uses in order to advance his agenda. So I'll get into it a little bit. First of all, 
this is a narrative he tells Russians. He's like, we're fighting Nazis. That's essentially, you know, the story he tells uh, his people. I think some of them see through it. And then the question is, well, are there Nazis in Ukraine? How Nazi-filled is Ukraine? Well, it's complicated, as most things are historically. So going back to World War II, the Ukrainians, particularly in Donbass and the Baltics, were so poorly treated by the Soviets that they actually saw the Germans as liberators. So they became Nazis by proxy because they weren't treated like crap. I'll just give you one example. On March 25th, 1941, the Soviets started using forced deportations against people from the Baltic states. More than 90,000 Balts were sent to Siberia in rail cattle cars. Many never returned home. Just in 1949, the Soviets deported more than 10% of the male Estonian workforce. It is a very complicated history. Now, in terms of how it manifested in Ukraine, there was a party called the Svoboda Party, which is uh, which means freedom. And it's a far-right party that started in Ukraine. But then I looked at their elections. Ukraine, at its peak before the war, had 44 million people. In 2019, which was the last election, this party had 307,000 votes, 1.62%. So that just gives you a sense of how tiny this party is. And this party's also tried to become more mainstream. So they're not like hardcore Nazis. They've realized that in order to play the political game, they can't be walking around with Hitler or little mustaches. And the military component of this is the Azov Battalion, which is a uh, started out as a right-wing paramilitary group, but it was the only one willing to fight in the Donbass region where Russia was <laughs> fighting Ukraine since 2014. And uh, Ukraine pretty much had no choice but to absorb it into its own military. But the actual battalion has shrunk. In 2017, it was about 2,500 members. And then by 2022, it was 900. So again, it is true-ish what he's talking about, but this cannot possibly be his goal. War makes a lot of strange bedfellows. Sometimes you have to ally yourself with people who are just enemies of your enemy. They become your, your friends or allies at least. And that's the case here. It's sort of like if Texas... We disagreed with them on so many issues, but because Mexico was constantly attacking us, we needed the military might of Texas. So we keep them in the union. You don't have to look that far or have a theoretical conversation. Joe Biden went to Iran to get a deal on gas because the prices started to go up and it looked bad for the administration and inflation was rising. So we unlocked their funds, freeing them to support Hamas and Hezbollah and all these other guys because we wanted cheaper oil. Again, there are no free rides here. Every decision is going to have tons of consequences and every, every ally or every enemy that we choose will create consequences for us, financial, military, or otherwise. What really bothers me is we have put Ukraine in an unwinnable position. And the reason for that is we are tourists. Putin lives there. When I say there, the region. When our priorities change, our whims change, we can cut off funding at any time and then poof, no Ukraine because they'll have no way to defend themselves. The average age of their soldier now is something like 43. All these young men have died or fled the country or whatever. It is truly a humanitarian disaster and one that I think could have been prevented. But because of all of our interventions, because of us talking them out of signing this deal, because we've provided weaponry thus far, we're in this, if you break it, you buy it type of situation, morally. That doesn't mean that people are going to want to keep supporting it indefinitely. And 
Putin knows that. Wouldn't it be better to negotiate with Russia? Make an agreement? Already understanding the situation that is developing today? Realizing that Russia will fight for its interest to the end? Russia will fight for its interest till the end. We are tourists. We're like that couple that goes to a hotel in Paris and says, hey, let's pee on each other. It's something that they would never do in their house, but because it's in a hotel that they don't have to clean, they're experimenting. That mattress is a disaster and they don't care. That is exactly us. We are peeing on Ukraine and we don't care, ultimately. That's the sad, unfortunate thing. And I think we're morally obligated to help, but I honestly don't know what help means anymore. Do we keep supplying weapons and have them die for the inevitable loss anyway, because Russia's never giving up and we're eventually going to stop supporting them? Or do we force concessions and try to get them to the table for a, a ceasefire and disarmament and some sort of a, a treaty? I don't know. I don't even have the information. None of us have the information. This is privileged military data. And I honestly wish them the best, but I don't see how long-term Ukraine has a chance of winning unless something drastic and awful happens that might entangle other people, including ourselves. The other part that I think is really important to discuss is Putin talked about the changing economic landscape. And his point is completely backed up by facts. So all of the numbers he cited are true. Despite the sanctions, Russia is still the biggest economy in Europe. And now that we've weaponized the U.S. dollar by pulling uh, all these accounts from Russia or freezing them, they were forced to do business in rubles. So now... 34% uh, of their business in rubles, 34% in yuan, and the rest in dollars. And they have now $230 billion in trade with China. And according to Putin, it's completely balanced. And Tucker asked him- The question is what comes next? And maybe you trade one colonial power for another, much less sentimental and forgiving colonial power. I mean, are, is the, the, the BRICS, for example, in danger of being completely dominated by the Chinese, the Chinese economy, uh, in a way that's not good for their sovereignty. And Putin, I would say, gave a wise answer. We have heard those boogeyman stories before. It is a boogeyman story. We're neighbors with China. You cannot choose neighbors just as you cannot choose close relatives. We share a border of thousand kilometers with them. This is number one. Second, we have a centuries-long history of coexistence. We're used to it. Third, China's foreign policy philosophy is not aggressive. Its idea is to always look for compromise, and we can see that. And then you compare it to all of the wars that we have been involved in and really initiated. We're not neighbors with Korea. We went to war there. We're not neighbors with Vietnam. We went to war there. Same thing with Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and all these other nations. So the question is, are we the good guys? Or are we the militaristic threat that we've been warning others Russia is? And I would never have made that statement ever, ever in my life the way I grew up. I was so patriotic for America. In fact, my wife has been disgusted with me about how patriotic I am and how I, I get tearful at cartoons that feature some sort of patriotic. It could be a Simpsons cartoon and I'm going to be welling up with tears. And so this idea that I would even question it just goes to show how much we've been covering up from people, how our perception is changing in the world. And we better get a grip on this. And uh, statistics that um, Putin rattled off, the G7 was 47%, and now it's down to 30% of the global economy. The BRICS are now bigger. Indonesia is a huge world-leading economy, the biggest Muslim country. And this is inevitable. This will keep happening. It is like the rise of the sun. 
you cannot prevent the sun from rising. You have to adapt to it. How do the United States adapt? With the help of force, sanctions, pressure, bombings, and use of armed forces. This is about self-conceit. Your political establishment does not understand that the world is changing under objective circumstances. And in order to preserve your level, even if someone aspires, pardon me, to the level of dominance, you have to make the right decisions in a competent and timely manner. Such brutal actions, including with regard to Russia and, say, other countries, are counterproductive. We're not going to be able to resist the inevitable. Our ability to be this military power that gets our way through force is over. We need to do it through persuasion, through goodness, through trade, through our brain power and not our military power. Unfortunately, we've built a lot of institutions that are built for force. And we've also created a reputation that needs fixing and no one is even on the horizon that could fix it. Maybe RFK has a positive message in that regard. Certainly not Biden, where two wars spawned under him. Certainly not Trump, who says all kinds of crazy stuff every day. The other thing I thought was interesting, when Tucker asked Putin, what do you think of the American leaders? What do you think of Biden? What do you think of Trump? Who do you prefer as a partner to Russia? And he said, it doesn't matter. I had a very good relationship with, uh, say, Bush. I know that in the United States, he was portrayed as some kind of a country boy who does not understand much. I assure you that this is not the case. He was no worse than any other American or Russian or European politician. I assure you, he understood what he was doing as well as others. I had such personal relationship with Trump as well. The way he said it was very dismissive. He's like, it doesn't matter who your leader is. They're all the same. They're all fine. But that's not a great commentary on who we're sending out there in the world to represent us. It is not about the personality of the leader. It is about the elite's mindset. If the idea of domination at any cost, based also on forceful actions, dominates the American society, nothing will change. It will only get worse. But if, in the end, one comes to the awareness that the world has been changing due to the objective circumstances and that one should be able to adapt to them in time, using the advantages that the U.S. still has today, then perhaps something may change. I saw this from Maxime Bernier. Uh, he's the head of the People's Party. It's a conservative party in Canada. And he tweeted... We pushed the Russians in the arms of the Chinese. We gave a new impetus to the BRICS, which is uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China. We encouraged them to de-dollarize and create a parallel trade and financial system. And we pushed dozens of emergent countries to side with them. It's the West that's becoming isolated in the world today, not Russia. We should never have taken part in the war in Ukraine, but rather called for a ceasefire and peace negotiations. It's very hard to argue with that. I really do think we're entering a new era that's going to require a level of global cooperation and an approach that we are not used to. And quite honestly, I'm concerned because there are really two things that are holding up the U.S. economy. The dollar as the reserve currency and our military. And this war with Russia in Ukraine, we have jeopardized at least the dollar component because we showed that we would be willing to weaponize our reserve currency. And that's not to say other countries haven't been trying to get off dollars. They have. China's been doing it. A lot of uh, countries have been doing it, but it takes a while. We're expediting it because of some of our actions. And I don't know that any of us are ready to live in an America 
that has to make balanced budgets like every other country in the world, countries that can't print unlimited money. That is truly a scary prospect. And the fact that we have the military is great, but as we've seen with these hypersonic missiles, we're not as safe as we think. And if we were to go to war, we don't even have the manufacturing capacity to keep up with, with an enemy like China. Because China, even if they didn't have the best missiles, their missiles cost maybe 200 grand a piece. They can send thousands and thousands because they can manufacture an infinity with their production capacity. Even if our missiles are a hundred times better, they cost a million bucks a piece or a million and a half a piece. So yeah, we'll knock out their first few. What are we going to do with the next hundred? So again, we're not as safe as we were and we're not as smart as we were. And financially, we need to really rethink this thing. And the Putin interview highlighted a lot of these issues and their truths, whether or not the underlying character is a good person doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if his recounting of history was accurate. What is accurate is we are in a different place and our lack of recognition of it is very much concerning. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this. Share it with others. Tell a friend. Support the show on Patreon if you can. And I will see you next time on The McFuture. We still have people running around with cloth masks. Those have been proven to be ineffective. I just went to um, an event at a friend's house, three people wearing cloth masks, like <laughs> they're about to die, all pretty healthy, but healthy physically, mentally, they're gone. I think their brains are broken. And the media break brains and fix elections. How many unlubed narratives will they have to shove in our bungholes before we start asking questions. When is the skepticism going to show up? Hey, maybe what they're telling us is BS. Maybe they're telling us what the government wants us to know. So I, I don't know when that happens, but I would like it to be sooner rather than later.